Well, one of the most significant features of our lives now, that was simply not the case a mere 15 years ago, is the pervasiveness of social media. So most of us have social media in one form or another, or five forms or another. Uh, We post pictures, memes, hot takes, words, you know, former generations would have no idea what they meant. And it just takes the click of a finger and hundreds of people suddenly know what's going on in our lives, what we're eating, how we feel. And with the advent of this new media, I think one of the strongest temptations has been for these media users to portray a public persona online that simply differs from what's really going on in their lives. And so we lean towards posting pictures of achievements, successes, smiles, but fewer photos of temper tantrums, marriage fights late at night, mental illness that we struggle with under the radar. Often, Instagram and Facebook and the like provide opportunities for us to live the life we wish we had. So, in an article on Inc.com, Jessica Stillman writes that the more miserable you are, the happier your social media posts will be. She says, of course, intellectually, we all know that our real-life selves and our highly curated online selves differ hugely, but it's still easy to fall into the trap of letting other people's perfect social media profiles convince you that you're somehow falling short. What follows in her article is just this, uh, this Twitter thread that she kind of copied and pasted into her article where this one person said, why don't you respond to this tweet by pictures that you've posted in the past online that had nothing to do with how you're really feeling or sort of obscured how you're really feeling and results poured in. Stillman writes, people shared a torrent of posts about the reality behind seemingly cheerful vacation snaps, glamorous selfies, smiling family portraits, and sports triumphs. Happy-looking couples confessed to fighting moments before the photo, while others bravely told of the mental health issues they were hiding in their smiling posts. See, social media, perhaps more than ever before, has made pretending to be something you're not easier than ever. We have come to find a semblance of security in portraying our lives as put together, cheery, content, when oftentimes, even at the moment we're posting that online and it's uploading and ready to go live, we feel a reality that's far from it. Of course, I'm not saying it's wrong to post smiling pictures online. Please do. I do not want to go online and see a bunch of grumpy faces. But... I think it's unhealthy and dishonest to to sort of hide in those pictures, right? To hide in our online profile and pretend that that's always what's going to reveal the true things about us. Well, this morning in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus deliver a blistering denunciation of people who claim to be something they're not. Jesus will condemn religious people who live a religious life and keep religious rules, yet have hearts far from God. And so Luke chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 37 through to the end of the chapter. Luke eleven thirty-seven. 37. 
While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you! For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Hard passage. Jesus speaks this litany of woes against the religious establishment of his day, and so with our time this morning, we're just going to group his words, his, his denunciation, under kind of four main headings, four main themes I think we can kind of trace through this passage. So first, these religious leaders disconnect the outside from the inside. These religious leaders disconnect the outside from the inside. Look with me at that first verse, verse 37. So Jesus has been teaching He's asked to go to dinner at a Pharisee's house, which sounds like trying to go into the lion's den, but, you know, Jesus is not a coward. He goes, but he doesn't wash before he eats, verse 38. This washing would have been promoted by the Pharisees, but it was not an Old Testament law requirement. Uh, see, the Pharisees loved their rules, even rules God never gave them. They just loved them. And so now this Pharisee, who remains nameless, is using his rules to judge the rule giver, Jesus himself. I don't know if this is going to go end well for him. And so Jesus responds in verse 39. 
Luke says, and the Lord. Notice that title Luke is using purposely to show Jesus' authority in this conversation. The Lord said to this Pharisee, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of wickedness, greed and wickedness. It's kind of the definition of hypocrisy, right? The inside is different than the outside. Jesus is calling the Pharisees hypocrites. They put forward this exterior of piety and and holiness, but inside they are full of filth and evil. This is the real internal state of soul for the Pharisees, according to Jesus. But here's the thing. They don't seem worried about it. I think a lot of us, hopefully, can see sort, sort of seeds of hypocrisy in our lives. But I hope, as, as those of us who are regenerate by the Holy Spirit, it bothers us a little bit. For the Pharisees, they don't seem concerned one bit. They're not worried about the inside, just as long as the outside looks good. So Jesus says they're like dirty dishes. Perhaps he's kind of holding up a dirty dish as he says this. I don't know. They're like dirty dishes that have been cleaned up on the outside, which isn't really the side that gets dirty, right? Unless you have kids. And and they clean up the outside so they look good and presentable. You can put it back on the shelf and it looks clean. But can you imagine just picking up that, that bowl after a few days and finding decaying food, mold starting to build up? rotten residue. Jesus is saying, that's what you're like. That's what your hearts are like. In verse 40, he says, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? He says this, he points them to their creator, to the one who designed them. And he says, he is the one who made you completely, both your inside and your outside. He knows you front to back. He's the one that knows not only the behavior you put out, but your hearts that you hold within. Fear the Lord. So Jesus says, give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Don't just give alms to the poor to look good. Give it from within. Work on your heart attitude, your heart motivation. And when you give from that, you'll find that everything will be clean. Church, there's a weight all throughout this passage for us. I wonder if you feel it already. So as your pastor, I think many of you that I know well are fairly good at being honest. But let us all beware. There isn't much that will kill gospel life in a local church faster than surfacey Christianity. A kind of church culture where everyone is putting on, when you walk through these doors, you're putting on a sort of Instagram church profile instead of coming as who you really were this week and who you really are right now. Is this a temptation for us? There's no doubt that it is. Because we're all sinners. We all have sinful hearts and we live in a world that praises status and achievement. And if you think about it, what is status? What is achievement in a church? It's, it's, a, it's a, 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 a holiness, a, a respectability that shows, right? And so there's this pressure, even within a church of our size, to measure up to everyone else. And it's always been this way. If you think about it, ever since the beginning, sin makes us want to hide, right? Remember Adam and Eve? They had walked freely with God in the garden, But then sin came and they hid. 
from God. In our lives, then, sin will tempt us to hide from God and from his people. We'll come to church and we'll leave the dirt at home. Loudon Valley Baptist Church, may we fight the facade. Many of you will have heard or, or perhaps read C.S. Lewis's The Screw Tape Letters. Uh, the premise of the book is a, is a senior demon named Screwtape writing to a demon in training named Wormwood on how to best tempt and, and lead God's people, particularly the subject um, Wormwood is, is, a, is assigned to, astray. And so when you're reading it, you kind of have to put yourself literally like, in the devil's perspective. God is the enemy, right? Well, it so happens others have creatively taken that perspective and sort of written their words through Screwtape's voice. And one of those is a pastor in Abu Dhabi named Steve Fuller. And here's a part of how he kind of channels Lewis and writes with the voice of Screwtape. He says this, Screwtape says this to Wormwood. Keep the Christian from others who belong to the enemy. Don't try to have him say no to fellowship. Instead, have him say yes to everything else. And when the enemy stirs his heart about being part of a church community, whisper that he can get more involved as soon as his schedule opens up, and then make sure that never happens. If he does get time with believers, don't panic. Work with our fellow demons to keep the conversation shallow. Whisper to him that he's the only one with weak faith, and that if he says something, he'll feel out of place. Don't let any of them ask him how he's doing. And especially, don't let any of them pray for him. That's how I lost Peter. Church, if we always keep the conversation shallow, we'll never know how to really pray for each other. If we keep the conversation shallow, we're playing right into the devil's hand. Jesus has come for our hearts, not just our religious performance. Secondly, Jesus says these religious leaders neglect the weighty for the easy. These religious leaders neglect the weighty for the easy. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the Old Testament law did indeed command tithing. This was a giving of a percentage of income to the things that the Lord would command it to go towards, you know, priesthood or those in need. And Jesus is not saying that's a bad thing to do, not at all. Instead, his concern with is with how the Pharisees emphasize the little details of tithing disproportionately. As one scholar puts it, they major on the minors, Right? We see this in the Old Testament as well. Throughout the Old Testament, you can go to 1 Samuel 15 when Samuel rebukes the king. Or you can go to Hosea 6, verse 6, where God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, God's desire is for his people's love, not their perfunctory duty. And so Jesus says these religious leaders of his day have majored on the minors. They've, they've gotten the little, the little details of tithing down pat. They're pros at that. But they've forgotten the bigger matters of justice and the love of God. Imagine 
Imagine a wife who, who wants to know her husband loves, him, loves her. She wants to see that her husband really cares for her, really wants to bless her, really wants to know her. And yet, in his mind, he thinks he's showing her all the love she could ever want simply by bringing home the paycheck and checking off the honey-do list, right? In his mind, as long as he's doing these sort of basic things to keep things running, to keep the, the lowest common denominator, she should be satisfied or else she's just needy. But of course, in her heart, she, she could care less for those things, ultimately. She wants his heart. And the Pharisees, likewise, are neglecting the bigger aspects of the law, and yet they're still keeping up on the, on the little things. They want to feel good about themselves and look good to others, and they found out that doesn't actually take too much. So they, they tithe their rel- religiously, they, they give, they, they perform these, these functions of religion, but neglect their love for God. Sound like a common temptation for us, church? It is a human inclination to purposefully avoid the things that will look hard and focus instead on the things we can do more efficiently and more easily. And when it comes to God, in our minds often, doing the little stuff we feel can can keep him off our backs, keep him from asking too much of us, and yet still show him we care. Right? It's the neglect of the weighty for the easy. So Christian, think about it. How might you be using the easy stuff in your Christian walk to neglect the harder stuff God is asking of you? And Jesus gives us an example. He mentions the love of God. I mean, don't we so often push off meditation in the word? All these spiritual disciplines God has lovingly given us to kind of cultivate affection for him. Don't we so often put those things off for easier things we can check off our lists? Don't we often, when we try to sit down and actually read the Bible, don't we often just get like Martha and get so distracted with things that can be fine, sure, but we neglect to sit at Jesus' feet? Are we much better than the Pharisees? In verse 43, Jesus continues, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. It's like, it's like we've read that, that previous verse and we've seen that the Pharisees are not nurturing their love for God. And so a, a good question then would be like, well, what do they love? What do they love? If, if they're not nurturing this love towards God vertically, then, I mean, how else are they, they, they uh, thinking about what they love? And Jesus says they love their own praise. They love to be revered. They love to have greetings in public places. They love the best seat, the seat of honor in the church gathering. When we make the praise of man ultimate in our hearts, God is always demoted to a lesser object of love. And the trade-in is is bad. The results are actually catastrophic. Remember in our series on Proverbs earlier in the year, we thought about how Proverbs is a right view of God and then how that right view of God leads to a right view of our lives and our world. But what if you get the fear of God wrong? 
wanting to distort that and kind of crumble down the fear of God and just make your ultimate fear fear of man. What happens then? Your life unravels. So that's our second point. These religious leaders neglect the weighty for the easy. Third, these religious leaders lead others astray. These religious leaders lead others astray. This is a particularly sobering word from Jesus. Look at verse 44. Jesus says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. I had no idea what that meant when I first came to that verse. Because you think about Matthew, he talks about whitewashed tombs, right? Looking good on the outside, full of dead man's bones on the inside. Is Luke saying the same thing? What's going on here? And church, when I found out what this meant, it was like a cold chill went down my spine. Because think about it. Jews didn't want to touch dead bodies, right? It made them unclean. It messed up their schedule. And so the best way to steer clear of contamination from a corpse was not to come into contact with one, right? Hence, marked graves. Stay clear. What if a grave is left unmarked? What if you mistakenly come across it and you kind of fall amidst the dead bones of a dead body? Unknowingly, you have become unclean. And now Jesus uses that disgusting, nauseating metaphor, and he says, you're like that. Oh no, you're not like the ones that just wander stupidly into contact with an unmarked grave. You're the unmarked grave. You see what he's saying? He's saying those who even unknowingly come into contact with you are contaminated. You contaminate people, Pharisees. The New Testament scholar Daryl Bach calls the Pharisees here a death trap. Pretty much literally, right? He says, rather than leading people to heaven, the Pharisees' pseudo-spirituality leads them to the grave. What a dark, dark picture Jesus is painting of religious people who not only harm themselves and their hypocrisy and wickedness, but then lead others to hell with them. In Matthew's gospel, he says, you go, you search, you make proselytes, and then you make your proselytes twice as much children of hell as you are. Jesus has strong words for the religious establishment of his day. And church, this is a good reminder of the influence religious leaders, pastors, preachers, online speakers, elders, whatever you want to category you want to think it's a good reminder of the influence these leaders have over our lives for good or for ill as christians this is god's design spiritual authority is god's design but how often can sin twist it what's more pastors especially can be even more susceptible to temptation to hypocrisy paul tripp wrote a whole book called dangerous calling on something like this how dangerous it is, how easy it is to sort of start bifurcating between your private life and your public life because holiness in your public life means so much. It means your livelihood. It means your success. And so it is not uncommon for pastors to be counseling and preaching and teaching and leading prayer meetings and visiting people in the hospital and doing all kinds of pastory things 
and yet on the side be viewing pornography regularly, nursing secret sins on the side. I mean, for me, preaching can often feel like one of the most hypocritical things I do because I'm preaching things I myself know that I struggle to believe and to obey, just like any other Christian, but I'm the one up here trying to tell you to live that way. See the elevation of the temptation to hypocrisy? And that's why it's important for me to take in God's word for myself before I, before I teach it to you. I don't want to just kind of read it, read the commentaries, and then regurgitate it to you all. I want to imbibe it myself. Do I do that perfectly? No. But it's necessary. And that's why it's important that I speak from God's word. And I keep saying, look at verse 33. Look at verse 34. Look here. Look here. Don't look just so much here. Look here. It's important that I speak from God's word for us all, not merely from my word to you all. So church, pray for your leaders. As the book of James puts it, those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The theme of leading others astray continues. Look at verse 45. So at this point, someone around Jesus speaks up. I find this part funny. It's a lawyer. We bumped into these before in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They're legal experts, right? They're, they're scribes is another way you could call them. And so this guy stands up and he says, teacher. It's kind of like he's saying, cool off, Jesus. And he's saying, teacher, in saying these things to the Pharisees, you're insulting us also. It's, it's kind of a humorous remark when you think about it. He's like, Jesus, do you know what you're saying? You're indicting us too. You better rethink this. And Jesus is like, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I am. Let me turn to you guys now. Talk about backfire. For the remainder of the passage, Jesus speaks woes against the lawyers, just as strenuous as the woes against the Pharisees. And, and really, we can just kind of, we can kind of combine these two. These, these guys worked in tandem, the Pharisees and the scribes, right? And so these woes kind of apply to the whole of that kind of religious elite of the day. Look at verse 46 then. Jesus says, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. This is again getting back to what we talked about a few moments ago, this, this tendency of the Pharisees to add certain restrictions, certain laws on top of the law of God, and then demand others to follow those additions. And so Jesus is saying that as the experts in the law, they should know better. And yet they're, they're adding to the law and therefore weighing down their followers, weighing down their students without offering the least bit of help or encouragement. It's like, it's like you know, seeing the, the, the well-built, strong man walking out of the grocery store making his wife and kids take all the bags, Right? And he's just on his phone. It's kind of that same idea. Like, here are all this, these weights for you. Have fun with that. And finally, look at verse 52. He again speaks to the scribes and he says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. I mean, what a terrible judgment of those who would lead people to God. In effect, by their misguidance, by their misinterpretation, by their misdirection, they're leading people not to heaven, but to the gates of hell. 
The knowledge of God that people need is being hindered by the very people who ought to be teaching them that knowledge. So we're reminded, church, sin never affects just one person. Sin, no matter how private, will reverberate out into the lives of others around you. And nowhere is that more incredibly damaging and painful than when a church leader falls into sin. These Pharisees, these scribes, are leading others astray eternally. These words from Jesus are just, they're so damning. They're so alarming. But this is a thing. With this sort of condemnation in front of them, you're, you're going to hell and you're leading other, peoples to hell, other people to hell. What's the final thing that Jesus says about these religious leaders? They reject those God sends. They reject those God sends. Look at verse 47. Jesus says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. So Jesus is saying, Scribes, you know what your dads did. You're just like them. You're just like your fathers who persecuted and killed God's prophets in years past. And now, judgment's coming for you. Verse 49. Therefore also the wisdom of God, I think that refers to to God's plan, God's will, said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed from the foundation of the world, may be shared against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Jesus, I think, is, is thinking of these prophets and apostles who would come with the formation of the New Testament church. Think men like Peter and Paul, men who would be rejected by the Jews for the cause of Christ, men who would have ultimately shed their blood for the cause of Christ. These prophets and apostles will be sent from God. And this, these Jewish leaders are just going to keep doing what they've always done, what their dads did before them. And Jesus makes a a huge arc across the whole Old Testament. Because who was the first guy to ever die? The first righteous man to ever die? It was Abel, right in the beginning of Genesis. And then he traces an arc all the way to a guy named Zechariah, who you can read about in 2 Chronicles 24, a, a, a prophet who was killed by an evil Israelite king. And if you think about it, in the Hebrew Bible, 2 Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament. So from Genesis all the way to the end. Jesus is is spanning the entire arc of 39 books that speak of God's plan to save and God sending all these prophets and, and messengers on his behalf who have constantly been rejected. And now Jesus is saying, all of that is coming to a head. All of that's coming to a fruition in me. And yet you're still going to reject me. God's people are still not going to listen to those he has sent them. And this current evil generation is just going to keep in step with the sins of their fathers. They are not just going to get the prophets. They're not just going to get the the law. They're going to get the fulfiller of both the prophets and the law. And they're still going to reject him. Just like their fathers would have done if they were in their shoes. And I think that takes us to really the scariest thing about being a Pharisee 
or a scribe. Because a Pharisee and a scribe in their folly, hypocrisy, and pride will ultimately reject God's offer of salvation itself. Because they, they want to look good. They want to be put together, but the gospel comes from those who are not good and who, are, who know their lives are a mess. Jesus has come for those who need him, not for those who think they're all set. And so these Jewish religious leaders are showing once again they will reject those God sends with salvation. It's a scary thought to be so stiff-necked, so stubborn, that even the Son of God come in the flesh will not bring you to repentance. And so what does our passage end with? It ends with Jesus himself, the greatest prophet, being rejected. Verse 53. Jesus has said all these words which you could imagine the Pharisees really did not care for. And then as he went away from them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. There's an idea of interrogation here. Provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him. It feels like a crouching predator springing to kill. They're trying to catch him in something he might say. And so Luke, as he continues on in his narrative, he's setting in place for us as his readers the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders that will eventually lead to him being crucified. Ultimately, lying in wait, these leaders, will, they're going to get him. They will take him to the Roman authorities, and he will be nailed to a cross. Ultimately, they will succeed. But here's the amazing thing. In their rejection of the greatest prophets, in that very rejection, God is going to open the way of salvation for all who would believe. See, even a Pharisee can be saved if he humbles himself and sees his need. Because on the cross, Jesus will take all the hypocrisy, all the greed, all the wickedness, all the foolishness of our hearts that we want to desperately hide from anyone else. And Jesus will take it all and he will be made sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God in him. And God the judge will rain down his wrath for sin on Jesus at the cross so that anyone who would turn to Jesus and repent and place their trust in him would be saved. And so friend, if you've done bad things, if you like to hide the more seedy parts of your history, and if you know you're a mess, Jesus has come for you. Turn to him. And you'll find an ocean of grace that will never run dry. You'll just swim in its waters for eternity. And Christian, church family, brothers and sisters, see Jesus' words for religious people who present an exterior that is fake. And fight the Pharisee impulse. Don't settle when you walk through these doors or when you go to community group or when you meet up for a one-to-one -one Bible study. Don't settle for an Instagram version of your Christianity. At Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, let's be real. Of course, there's discernment. You're not going to have a family of six come sit at your dinner table and start sharing everything that your heart has ever thought. 
But just because there's discernment doesn't mean you don't confess it at all. Part of being in church means finding and building relationships with people that you can trust and then sharing and confessing your sin to them. I mean, think about it. Jesus already knows you inside and out, and he's already died for you. So what are you risking to share with somebody else? Just momentary embarrassment? The ability to confess our sin and be forgiven might have momentary embarrassment, but it's going to reap eternal reward. And so let's be real and let's rejoice that sinners like us have a Savior like him. Let's pray. Lord, the temptation to hypocrisy, pride, and legalism are regular foes in our hearts. And so we wage war against that temptation in prayer right now as a church. We want to be the real deal. We want to lay bare our sins so we might know your forgiveness and the freedom and the peace that confession and assurance of pardon brings. So help us to be a church that exemplifies and encourages honesty because we know that Jesus has not come for us as the healthy people in no need of a doctor, but those who are in desperate need of being washed clean. Lord, unlike the Pharisees, help us not to have a myopic vision of ourselves, be so concerned with our church profile but may our vision be on you. May you lift our gaze to you as our highest joy. Lord, be our vision. We pray in Jesus' name.